0: Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence based practice and learning.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Learning Scientist Podcast. My name is Dr. Cindy Niebel, and I am a lecturer at Vanderbilt University in the Leadership and Learning in Organizations EDD program. I am joined today by uh, a fellow educator, Mary Chapel, And um, we have a really cool conversation planned today where Mary is going to talk to us about some of the challenges she's had with trying to motivate teachers to do things they don't wanna do uh, and really trying to use evidence-based strategies to do that. So um first things first I'm going to let Mary introduce herself and then we'll start getting into talking about that that problem that she's been trying to solve.
0: Great. Thank you so much for having me today, Dr. Nebel. It is an exciting but challenging problem of practice that I'll be speaking about. A little bit about me, I've been in education for about 25 years. Most of that time as a classroom teacher, I taught in both general ed and special ed, all elementary, also as a literacy specialist, and recently moved into our department of education as a curriculum specialist within the special ed division. And so my job is to support special education teachers, especially with reading and literacy initiatives. I live in a state in which Our literacy rates are among the lowest in the nation, and um, our kiddos with disabilities by far are the lowest. And we know that those students can achieve with the supports when they have the supports that they need. But how do we get them the supports that they need? Sometimes that can be challenging, especially in a pandemic and post-pandemic year, um, when teachers and administrators have an incredible amount of stress that they are dealing with. Um, And so I'll just jump into what my problem was. Um, Within my division, we have a program that is mandated for some of our lowest performing schools. And if you think about it, we've got Our special ed teachers, who already have probably the hardest job in the school, supporting our kiddos with disabilities, who have some of the biggest struggles of all of our kiddos in the schools, coming back to in person school post pandemic when things are really, really stressful. And there's a big focus on social emotional learning. And then here comes the Department of Education saying, oh, And by the way, we really are going to need you to focus on getting this program started up again because nothing has happened in terms of this program, not to say that learning hasn't happened, but nothing has happened in terms of this program for 18 months. And to put it lightly, there was a strong lack of motivation. They didn't (laughs) want to do it. And you can imagine why, right? The stress of just getting back into classrooms was hard enough.
1: Mary, can you talk a little bit? I mean, I don't want you to go into a ton of detail necessary, but but like, what what's this program all about? What is it that they have to do? I mean, I, I imagine really anything on top of normal life in post-pandemic world is a challenge, but what, what exactly were they, are they needing to do as part of this program?
0: That's a great question. And really, the program consists of two primary components. Uh, the first is coaching um, to support the teachers with their instructional practices. And the second are layers of professional development. Um, in my state, we are really beginning to well, mandate the use of structured literacy practices. And so that's new for a lot of our teachers. And so the first thing that we've asked them to do is take um, professional development, which then will be followed up by instructional coaching. The professional development piece is pretty intensive. Um, It's a lot of time, um, both in and outside of the classroom. And then On top of that, to have an instructional coach come in and observe your practice and meet with you to discuss the practices, that can be pretty stressful. But this is what the program entails. And as I said, it's mandated. There wasn't a choice as to whether or not they were going to participate. Yeah. So you've got multiple levels here. You've got
1: folks who likely are just in like a survival mode right now, right? Of just trying to keep afloat and you're adding a ton of extra work to them and they don't have a choice in it. And We know when folks don't have choice, that just feels really icky, right? That you, you just are really resistant to things that you're forced to do.
0: That's, that's exactly it. And, and, um, you know, I, I've kind of been using the phrase voice and choice, um, And I certainly have experienced this as a teacher and just as a person. If I don't feel like I've got a choice in something, I'm going to be really, really resistant. Um, I'll drag my feet, I'll whine, and um, I won't necessarily put my all into it. Yeah, yeah, because it's just like,
1: okay, what's the bare minimum in order to meet the sort of like compulsory standards here or whatever it is I have to do?
0: Exactly. And especially when it's a mandate that's coming down from um, the Department of Education where there may already be some disconnect and some friction, um, maybe a lack of trust. Um, There may be old baggage that I'm bringing along with me that may interfere with my relationship as a teacher with the Department of Education. And so as the now administrator in Department of Education, I had all of these different factors to deal with. And in our first meetings with teachers and with principals, there was a lot of pushback. They were very defensive, angry, resistant, to to put it mildly. and and you could see it in the expressions on their faces. We were in Zoom meetings, of course, but you could see the um, really almost antagonism coming across. Um, they were pretty unhappy. Yeah, you can feel that, can't you? I I have a feeling that
1: in today's world, pretty much everyone has been in a Zoom meeting at this point that gets super uncomfortable. Um, and and you can feel it. You absolutely can. You can you can feel that. Tension in the room. Those nonverbals are pretty loud,
0: aren't they? Exactly. Right. And, you know, as the administrator, and I'll add to this, Dr. Nebel, I've only been in this position for about eight months. This was brand new to me stepping into this position. And so I really saw it from the teacher's perspective, um, where I was almost putting myself in their shoes and understanding, wow, this is. If I were a teacher, I would not be happy about this either. But then that led me to start to think about, well, then what do we do? Because we've got to support these teachers in order to get these kids the instruction that they need. And at some point, we have to move forward. We can't just say, well, it's a pandemic, so we'll get to it later. Um, It's later. It's time. And, And so that was really the challenge that I faced was how are we going to motivate our school staff with really diving into this program and taking it on?
1: Yeah. And so so you took it upon yourself and um, I, I just consider this so admirable. You took it on your, on yourself to go to the literature and say, okay, what do we do? How do we motivate these folks to do something they don't want to do? Um but not just not just in that regard, right? Not just like how do we basically turn it around and make it so that this is something that they want to do, right? That not just how do we get them to do something they don't want to do, but how do we, how do we kind of change the attitude in the room a little bit? Um, and so tell me a little bit about, I don't know, even maybe your process a little bit for, for doing that research. How, how did you find figure out what you were going to do and, and then you know, what
0: what did you find? It was a process. I'll I'll put it that way. Um, And really, (laughs) it started with the lit review. I knew that I had to dive into the literature and at least start to get the terminology that I needed. And so I started searching on, and I knew that it was a motivation issue. Um, And so just starting with motivation was, was a big one for me. Started searching the literature and pretty quickly identified that I probably needed to dive into the literature that focused on social cognitive theories of motivation. And um, that's what I did. But I found a few key articles that helped me to kind of zero in a little bit more. And so when we think about social cognitive theories of motivation, we're talking about sort of a subset of motivation theories that are based on Bandura's social cognitive theory, um, which of course, it talks about the reciprocal processes of behavior and um, the person and the environment and that social piece. And that felt right to me, knowing, having just come out of the classroom, um, I know what social creatures teachers are, but I also knew that there was a lot of internal things going on there. And so I found a couple of key articles that helped me to focus in on contemporary theories of motivation. And first I did sort of a broad lit review, and I looked at expectancy value theory and attribution theory, social cognitive theory, goal theory, self-determination theory, and read as much as I could, took a ton of notes, and started looking for common themes within those five different theories because there wasn't anything that I sort of could sort of just dismiss. I, I since I'm not a psychologist, as a teacher, I knew that as a practitioner, I tend to take pieces of different ideas and use what works for me, and so I was. I, I suppose I was using the same process. I wanted to see what common themes there were and then take those pieces and put them together. And so I did identify several common themes throughout those theories. Um, and those were goal identification. So identifying some sort of a goal, um, that that concept of self-efficacy or competence. Um, knowing the perceived value, having autonomy, and then of course, building relationships. And I think for teachers, the relationship piece is particularly key. And it was one that I identified as really critical here because there is some old baggage that may get in the way of the relationships between teachers and administrators at the state level, Um, so, those were sort of the themes that I identified as being really important. So I'll just stop there for a second and see if you had any follow-up questions to that.
1: No, I think it's incredible. Um, just the, even the process that you went through here and I mean, the the themes that you're identifying as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, as a psychologist on this end, I'm going, yeah, that's right. Those are exactly the sort of key components here. Um, but what I think is really um, interesting and important is that you didn't stop there. And obviously you didn't stop there, but I even like what you said about I couldn't really just dismiss something immediately. So all of this sort of literature review and these theories that you're looking at, it's all very abstract. I mean, I I hope that you recognize that as you're reading through it too, right? That it's hard to dismiss these things because they're all written in, in the abstract of this big lofty theoretical idea. And how do you take that and then translate it into something that, will work right and and I, I like how you described that as kind of putting tools in your toolbox right there's there's all of these different things that you can take from these different theories and and utilize them when and how they work so i'd like to hear a little bit more from you about that process of taking these sort of abstract concepts and making them concrete and actually being able to transfer them and apply them because you know we know um in in cognitive psychology what a difficult process that is to to really be able to transfer that material. So maybe walk me through how you went from these vague theoretical concepts which you know you did a pretty incredible thing just by identifying those but then that translation part of of taking that and actually creating some sort of program from that. How how did that work?
0: Well, so I think that the the key word there that you used is translation, because I did have to translate it. Uh, I'm not an abstract thinker. I'm a practitioner. And so I had to take those concepts and I had to put them into my own language that worked for me. And I came up with sort of a summary statement that I felt sort of encompassed what I was trying to do. Uh, And so let me summarize this real quickly. So I knew from my lit review that motivation is stronger when learners believe that they can accomplish a goal and they have some degree of control over the situation and they can identify the relevance or the intrinsic value of the task. And they have a sense of connectedness with the people with whom they're working. So I had sort of these four factors, right? The belief that they could do it, they needed some control, they had to identify the relevance and then you know that, that connected this to, so those relationships were so critical. But I really focused on the language of intrinsic value and what I identified as my key problem of practice was how to support my participants with this transition from extrinsic motivation, where really we, the state, were pressuring them to do this to an intrinsic level of motivation. So how are we gonna get it from that external pressure to the internal buy-in? And as I read, I came up with some actionable steps that, um, I, I, that would sort of be my guiding um, process here. Um, so before I go into those, do you have any follow-up questions? I don't think so. I'm excited to hear more. Okay. Tell me, tell me. (laughs) First step that I identified was to create a vision that communicates the task purpose so that our learners, the participants could see the value. Uh, And that was one thing that was really missing from this program was that we didn't really have an identity. In fact, we didn't have a logo. We didn't have um, sort of a brand. We didn't have sort of that mission statement, the vision, all of those things. So that was one of the first things that I really dove into because I needed to be able to clearly communicate. This is our vision. This is our mission. These are our goals. And I wanted to be explicit about what it was. Um, And so that was the next step was to clearly identify the goals and the learning objectives. And in teacher speak, Um, To have sort of a broader goal, we want to support our students with disabilities, with reading proficiency, but then also to develop those SMART goals, um, the specific, measurable, achievable, um, relevant, and uh, timely, timely, thank you, Um, (laughs) timely goals, but something that could be measurable. And so that was the next step. And then another step that I identified is that we really had to recognize our learners' competence. And, you know, our teachers are amazing. Look at what they've been through. And they bring a wealth of experience and experiences with them. Um, I think our special ed teachers, having been a special ed teacher, I think our special ed teachers have accomplished so much in the last 18 months—it's really beyond measure—and so we had to acknowledge that and let them know that we recognized that and really honored that and what they were bringing to the table. Yeah, I think
1: you've got a a, a super big challenge with this program, right? Because the the people in the program are identified because. They have poor performance, right? And so it almost feels like they're they're like the naughty children or something coming to this. And so to be able to build them up and say, no, that's not how we view you, I think is extremely important. I'm sure was extremely important in that process.
0: You've got it exactly right, because um, I'm sure that they were seeing this as a punitive measure and it's not, but I don't know how clearly we had communicated that in the beginning we needed to really be specific that this is not punitive. This is about being supportive and um, about working together to boost everyone. Uh, But but that was a really critical piece was changing the messaging so that our teachers recognized that that they hadn't done anything wrong. This wasn't about them doing something wrong. This is about a system and improving a system to better meet everyone's needs then the the next step was really providing our learners with the means to develop skills that may be lacking or to improve a system so that they could achieve success. So what is it within the system that's not working? And that's, that's big, that's huge. And that's not something that's easily identifiable because it's going to be different possibly for every teacher. Um, and and so we had to sort of build that protocol in somehow, Um, And then this I felt was key, providing opportunities for our learners to exercise choice while also providing some structure that had some clear expectations and identified guidelines. And then building capacity for continued implementation of these strategies. And then finally, keying into that that piece of connectedness was promoting a responsive and really supportive environment in which our participants felt that sense of connection and regard for each other. Uh, So that's quite a list of of things. Yeah. But I tend to operate better when I have a clear vision and when I can share that vision with the people with whom I'm working. So I was pretty explicit. But here was the other thing. Once I did this, I began to realize, oh, you know what? Actually, the way that we're developing this, we have a lot of these pieces, but we haven't been explicit. We haven't communicated to our participants that you do have choice and voice here, that we do hold you in high regard. Um, As I mentioned, we didn't have a clear identity, and so developing that was really, really critical. And so then that was the next piece was how do we share this more explicitly, especially because the first couple of meetings had not gone so well.
1: Yeah. So there's there's now repair work that has to be done as well.
0: Yeah. that Yes, that was exactly it. And so then we began um, to sort of craft this identity and um, trying to change the language maybe a little bit and change our approach. And um, so I enlisted the help of some of the district's administrators to help us to sort of redesign the program so that really what we did is we said, okay, there are these two primary components of coaching and professional development. The rest of it, you build it the way that it works for you and your schools. Um, As long as it's got these two primary components, make it work for you. And so those were the messages that we took to our teachers or administrators, and um, there was a pretty significant turnaround in the attitudes of the next meetings.
1: Yeah, so so talk to me a little bit about that. So I, I think based on our, our previous conversations, most of sort of the, the results of this experiment, I'm doing air quotes, not that anybody right, right, can right. see that, right? <laughs> the results of this experiment um, are, are are really kind of subjective at this point, right? That these are are your impressions of how things have gone, but maybe walk me through um, what those sort of subjective impressions look like. But also if you could in an ideal world, or, or maybe you're planning to collect some real objective data
0: here to say, yeah, this, this is working. What does that look like? That's that's a great question, and you're right because we do plan to collect and have actually started already collecting data. One of the things that you know let me know that this wasn't going well back months ago was that we had um, put out a survey, and um, the response to the survey was not great. The people were frustrated, they were angry, and that was definitely one of my key identifiers that we have to do something different here uh and then we did um another survey we did another survey after sort of this meeting where the attitudes looked different at least over the zoom cameras and um the responses were much more positive but in addition there were some other things uh I had former colleagues, and, and this was difficult. I had former colleagues who were administrators or teachers at the schools that I was implementing this mandated program in. So friends, and, and that's awkward, um, Yeah, <laughs> but I'm a pretty direct person. And so I just called and said, hey, from your perspective, be honest with me. Tell me what you think. And uh, the the first go round was, this is terrible. I can't believe you're making us do it, do this. Not in so many words, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but close to, yeah. okay, now I see the value in this and now I'm getting excited. But where I really began to sense that things had turned around was when I began to hear from teachers and administrators that the district level administrators were encouraging their principals and teachers to do this; that they really saw the value in this, and that um, they were really putting their energy behind making this program successful. Uh, so we had buy in at a lot of different levels, and I felt that that was really key because, you know, when you've got multiple layers of classrooms and schools and districts and state. Any sort of disconnectedness can deteriorate things at any of those levels. And so we had to have buy-in along the way. Um, now, in the future, we will certainly be continuing with the surveys and much more in-depth interviews with people who I don't have personal relationships with. Um, but also, of course, we'll be looking at the data. We'll be looking at whether or not um, teachers' practices is Teachers' practices change as a result of the professional development. As a result of the coaching, we'll have coaching logs. Um, so there's a lot that's built into getting us the types of data that will inform whether or not we're taking the right steps. And then if we're not, then we'll find that out pretty quickly. And. Modify. Yeah. Well, this is really,
1: really great. And I, you know, I think that if I were a teacher listening to this right now, I might be a little overwhelmed, to be really honest, with the amount of time that you must have poured into the lit review and extracting portions of different theory and then turning that. It sounds like a lot of work. And I'm sure it probably was. Yes. Do you have any? advice for teachers who are kind of starting down this road of they've got some problem. Maybe it's not a motivational issue. Maybe they've got a separate issue, but they really feel like they need to dig into the literature. Do you have any advice for them about how to do that efficiently and effectively? How's that? that?
0: Yeah, that's a great question because this is my job now uh, building, developing these programs. And so luckily I get paid to do the research and to make sure, (laughs) (laughs) to make sure that my practice is grounded in, um, in good theory. But even when I was teaching, I still did the research because it was important to me that I keep on top of, of, um, of what was happening in the world of education. So a couple of things um, that as a teacher, I always did. Well, first of all, as a literacy specialist, I did subscribe and and read that I didn't read cover to cover. Let's be clear. (laughs) I skimmed articles from, um, for example, the International Literacy Association. So I would read The Reading Teacher and um, Reading Research Quarterly because there was always something that I would kind of look at and go, hmm, maybe that's something that I should take a look at. And certainly I didn't do that during um, back to school or end of school or testing periods, but I would do it periodically just so I could stay on top of things. And I think that one thing that I also learned was to zero in on those keywords so that as I was looking for information, I could use those keywords and filter out the things that I didn't want. And I should also add, Doctor Nebel, I was a school librarian during a period of this, and so I'm pretty good at searching for information. <laughs> <laughs> what's your What's your preferred search engine? How's that? <laughs> uh, you know, um, I do love library search engines, um, but but scholar works really really well because you know you can just dig in there and and put in your different terms and identifiers and I I do tend to to narrow down years because I want to look at the more current research um and especially when when working with students with disabilities there's so much happening at such a rapid rate that I don't want to pull in research from you know 20 years ago. I want to look at what's current. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes good sense. Well, I tell you what, as far as
1: as far as your motivation research goes, what I would like to do is I'm going to have you Send over to me kind of a summary of some of the stuff we've talked about today. And I'm going to include that in the show notes so that folks who are interested, I'm sure we have plenty of people who are in a similar position. I mean, goodness knows lots of us are in situations sometimes where we need to try to motivate individuals to do things they just don't want to do. And so I think we could all benefit from the research that you've already done. And so maybe including um, so kind of a little summary of like the, the themes that you'll pulled out from the literature and then how you even translated them into more common language would be extremely useful for for most anyone and maybe if you have a couple of those key articles that we could even link to those as well so that if folks uh, want, are really interested in this but again uh don't have the time we're in back to school time right now right so That's right. <laughs> Uh, so, so we can, uh, maybe provide some additional support for folks who would like to use that. Um, Mary, is there anything else that, that any, you know, words of wisdom or advice you want to give to, to our listeners?
0: No, just, uh, you know, dive in it. it there's, I think at one point I thought that diving into research was scary and something that was sort of beyond me as a teacher. And it's not, um, I do tend to navigate towards the easier to read articles. I'll be frank. Um, sometimes I skip over some of the the measurements. <laughs> I, I have a secret. We all do. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. But, um, you know, it, it's worth it. It's worth the time to, to really... Um, like I said, dive into the research and and see what's out there.
1: Yeah, I you know both both you the other special education educators that you are talking about, and frankly, any teachers are. I, I, I see them as as the superheroes of our day. You know that um, you all have continued to just take on so much in a somewhat thankless position um, that I, I I think that you are often not honored as much as you ought to be for the the hard work that you do. And, and really, as you said, building up that that self-efficacy saying that really anyone who is an educator these days is already doing a remarkable job. And our goal is just to add some more tools to the toolbox to, to create better systems. Um, I really like the way that you put that. I'm stealing that just so you know. (laughs) That's (laughs) right. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Mary. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. I really
0: enjoyed it. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learningscientists.